Hello, and welcome to another virtual author chat with the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is delighted to have with us author Amy K. Runyon, whose new book is the wonderfully entertaining The Memory of Lavender and Sage. Before we begin today, the Poison Pen does have copies of The Memory of Lavender and Sage on order, and we would be happy to hold one for you or put one in the mail. Just give us a call or go online to the Poison Pen Bookstore. Now I'd like to welcome Amy Runyon. Hi, thank you so much for having me, John. Thank you for joining us today. Um, my first question for you is, I'm fascinated as a reader as to how writers get where they're at, because it's not an immediate jump. There's a journey. And I know you wanted to write books back in the third grade, but some things happened to you between then and your first book. Who was Amy before you became published? Um, before I came published, I was a public school teacher. I taught French primarily for, oh gosh, almost a decade or a little over a decade. Um, and I also did a bit of English and public debate, you know, like public speaking and debate. Um, so it was a great deal of fun. And I loved working with teenagers um, because I was primarily doing high school. And um, I transitioned to teaching online when I became a mother. And that was definitely um, good for the whole work-life balance, or at least being able to be present for my kids when they were really tiny. Um, but, you know, and I, I actually, part of the reason I transitioned from the public school, you know, the in-person teaching was also, um, I have pretty significant hearing loss. And so um, transitioning to kind of more of an online situation makes it a lot easier. Yeah, that's good. Um, you also, your academic background is in French too. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I have a master's degree in French from the University of North Texas. And, um, you know, I had a great deal of fun um, on my thesis, which led to my first book. Um, I got to study in Quebec, studying about feminine immigration from France to Canada in the late 1600s. And that really led to the inspiration um, because it really was like government sponsored emigration for women because they wanted to populate the colonies. And um, so, yeah, that really, you know, everybody thought, why are you majoring in French? It's really not all that practical, but every book I've written has more or less been because of that degree. Yeah. And your first book was Promise, Promise to the Crown, which yes. if I understand correctly, came about from a short story. Yeah, I, I actually wrote it because I was taking a couple of um, creative writing classes. Gosh, it was back in 2003. I took a couple of them when I was working on a degree program at Indiana University. And um, they have a wonderful creative writing program there. So I took advantage of being able to take a couple classes there. And I, it's where I also learned about, you know, the women who were sent over as essentially mail order brides. And so, um, you know, I, I wrote this kind of introduction as, a, you know, this opening chapter as a short story. And everybody said, this is great, Amy, but it reads like the first chapter of a novel, not a, you know, a contained short story. Because it was kind of, it was the character Nicole's moment where she's standing on the edge of her father's fields. And they realized that to try and plant again would be a waste of seed. And she's got to find a way to, if she can't help her family, at least not be a burden on them. And that's why she makes the decision to go overseas. And so um, for each of the characters, I kind of did write out, even though it didn't all end up in the book, that pivotal moment when they decided to leave. How did the man your manuscript get into a published format? Was it an overnight sensation? Was it more of a long journey? 
Well, you know, I, I started that short story back in 2003 and I basically let it sit in a drawer for 10 years. Um, I'd pick it up and drop it from time to time, but I knew I really did want to turn it into a novel at some point. But I got busy teaching and I got married and I had a couple of kids and, you know, life got in the way. But then finally, when my daughter was sleeping through the night, I said, you know what? I'm 33 years old. I really want to do something. I can't like go, you know, travel off to the Taj Mahal with two tiny kids, but I can finish a novel while they're napping. And that's what I did. Um, you know, I'd get my work done in the morning. And then while they were napping in the afternoon, I'd take an hour or two to get in, you know, a thousand words, a couple thousand words um, on a good day. And then, you know, I decided if I enjoyed it, I'd keep going. And I did. And, um, you know, it took six months to finish a really bad draft, a few more months to make it less terrible. And then I went to a writing conference, Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers, and I made some contacts there, polished it again. And a few months after that, I found an agent. A few months after that, we had a book deal with Kensington. And um, those books were not an overnight success. But the smart thing they did, because I, I moved on to Lake Union because it was you know clear that you know, Canadian colonials weren't going to be the next big splash, um, sadly. And um, so I decided, you know, I was talking with my agent. I said, what should I do next? And she's like, World War II is on the rise. Because this is 2017, 2015, actually, when I started this. 2016, actually. And so it was before the big glut of World War II. And I said, well, what about the Russian female fighter pilots? And she said, that's your money pitch. Write that book. And we pitched it to Lake Union. And they did great things with it. But Kensington was very smart and started discounting my first two books and so that they would you know basically come up on the algorithms with daughters of the night sky and so those books have actually done really really well as backlist books so that feels really good they've earned out and um you know so those books have found a readership and that just feels amazing yeah, that's great yeah. um, that brings us to your current book the memory of lavender and sage what can you tell us about that book well, it really, yeah, I kind of always wanted to write a book set in Provence because it was, you know, as a French major, I had to study abroad. Oh, ouch, ouch, terrible hardship. I had to study in France. And um, so they, you know, I decided uh, uh, on a program in Avignon, which is a large city in the south of France. But I took every opportunity when I was there to take excursions out into the countryside. And it was just the most charming place. I knew I really wanted to set a book there. And I wanted it to be a contemporary. I'd always thought of writing, you know, contemporary. I want to do both historical and contemporary. But of course, the contemporary having, you know, the sense of nostalgia and world building that makes historical so immersive and so fun. But to take that over and translate that into contemporary. And so that was something that stuck with me for a long time. But then I thought of the idea of how I felt as a young 18-year-old kid going over to live in a foreign country, I'd never been on a plane ride longer than an hour and 10 minutes before I went to France. And all of a sudden, I'm, you know, this crazy 24-hour trek, Sacramento, LA, Paris, Marseille, off to Avignon. It was crazy. And, you know, I felt like I found myself there in a, in a sense, and I wanted to translate that into a book. And so we have Tempesta, who's never really fit into her family going to her, back to her mother's roots. Her mother passes away when Tempest is quite young. And um, she goes back to find about, out more about her mother and where she came from and learns a tremendous amount about herself. So there is a little bit of a mystery to the plot because she's trying mm -hmm. to figure out why people in her mother's village 
have react such diverse reactions to Tim Pest. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she notices that the people, especially who are of an older generation, let's say, you know, 50 plus generally, are very leery when she comes to the village. And she doesn't understand, like, she knows that the French are not like, you know, they're not like Americans who will greet you with a hug if they've never met you even. Um, she doesn't expect them to be warm and cuddly, but she finds their reactions very um, alarming at first. But then everybody under 50, basically, it's the reaction she expects, you know, just, you know, like, you know, a little bit aloof, but, you know, kind. And um, so she digs deeper and finds why her mother's presence in the village would have elicited such a reaction. Um, one of the things that you do really well is you create such a sense of place in the book. And for those that are not familiar with France, we sometimes think of it as just being monolithic. The entire country is exactly the same, but it's actually a lot of different little regions or areas or things like that. You chose Provence. What about that means you want to write a book there? Well, you know, I, I remember um, my first exposure to Provence before I lived there was were the films Jean de Florette and Manon de Source. <laughs> which, you know, it talks about, you know, it, it's, it's farmland. I mean, like most of rural France, it's farmland. And just the ties to the water and the land being so important. But then I learned more that they had, you know, they had their own language, Occitan, and they were this, up until the 1870s and the period following, they were their own kind of discrete culture. And my host parents, yeah, you can find street signs in Provençal or Occitan all over the region. My host parents were, you know, familiar. They they'd spoken a bit of it at home, but there are no monolingual speakers of Occitan. And so I created this village that time forgot. They were stubborn. That is like, you know, we have the village of Saint Colomb, and their defining characteristic is stubbornness. And it's it's how they've managed to retain some shreds of that culture that was systemically dismantled after the Franco-Prussian War. If you want to learn more about that, read a bakery in Paris. Because after that war, the French government created the École Normale, which were normal schools, teaching schools. And they would send people from, like, you know, say from Picardy up in the north down to Provence that didn't speak a word of Provençal. And they had to conduct all their education in French, and which isn't necessarily a problem, but they were harsh to the students that tried to speak their own language. They, it, it became, you know, it wasn't just trying to transition them to, you know, it's not a huge, it's twice the size of Colorado, France is. And they wanted to have a unified language, which makes sense from a governing perspective. I can understand that. They were so harsh and cruel. It wasn't like uh, you can maintain your own language and culture in, in tandem with French. No, it had to be obliterated. And so they were subversive in that. They continued throughout the generations to have Provençal classes. Um, and that becomes kind of a central element to their culture. And her, we, uh, you know, Tempesta learns that her mother was the Occitan teacher, which was yeah, a position of great prestige in the village. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much of this you brought from real life into your book, but it seems like there's a lot of concern in France about the state of villages, like these places where, and that could be a parallel to small towns in the U.S., where the younger residents are leaving because there's no job opportunities, there's limited things, so they're moving to the big city. Is that really kind of an issue in France? Oh, definitely. So, um, you know, that was the thing where, you know, it took me three times to figure out what this book exactly was about. Like, 
Because if there's anything that's easier about historical fiction is that you've got external forces at work. You know, if things get slow, throw in an explosion, all is good. But you can't do that in 2023 Provence. There aren't like Nazis, you know, looming large in the distance. And so I had to really think about what are the external forces? And it is the death of the French village. They have what's called the, ebb, the empty um, diagonal in France. And this part of France really isn't in the empty diagonal. But the villages really are emptying out and people are going to Aix-en-Provence and Marseille and Avignon because that's where the jobs are. And there are fewer and fewer opportunities because farming has become more mechanized and it's less attractive of a career. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it really is, you know, there's a hard, large swath of France that's basically emptying out is a diagonal from the northeast to the southwest. And I've driven through it. And let me tell you, trying to find a gas station is hard. Yeah. And those places are just emptying out. And um, and it's the true in parts of Italy and definitely Spain and ex exceedingly true in Portugal, I've learned. Like all the young people are moving to Lisbon and Porto and the rest of the villages. I mean, there are many, many villages where there aren't any residents under the age of 60 years old. And so when I learned more about this and I got to travel there, La um, Lavender and Sage was still um, being created at that point. So I got to go and take pictures of the area. It's really based on two villages. Um, San Colom is a fictional village. That's an amalgamation of two um, real villages. And, but, you know, getting to experience what it was like out in the countryside, you know, a, a Provence uh, by and large does okay because there's a huge tourist draw. But there are other regions, you know, outside like the Southwest outside of the area, right in the wine district, that's empty. And, um, you know, the and I read that the death knell is when the schools close and that so that became the kind of the external force um yeah and there are so many articles that i read about how the cafe culture is dying because people you know those cafes are closing there are villages that don't have um grocery stores and it's just so so sad um your previous books were historical novels which require mm -hmm. research and sources Many people don't think that contemporary fiction does require research, but as you've just said, you've visited the area, you've um, explored it through sources. What other resources did, did you find useful in writing The Memory of Lavender and Sage? I lived, and this is a resource I use for all my books, but it's particularly useful for contemporary, is I live on Google Maps. Okay. I, I mean, and street view and really trying to immerse myself because I can't go over, um, you know, as a mom of young, uh, you know, tweens and, you know, I, I've got responsibilities here in the U.S. I can't just go park myself in the south of France and write a book for a couple months, as wonderful as that might be. Um, I can't do that. And so um, really, you know, parking myself in front of Google Maps and really getting a sense of place, I found to be extremely useful um, in the book I'm working on now. I've been haunting, believe it or not, like vacation rental sites to find actual places uh, because it's a it's a travel story and she's going to several locations and just finding actual listings where I could set the story and um, you know, and finding actual places and actual things to, you know, and I can fictionalize it as much as I like, but having the bones of actual things that exist. I find makes it far more real and tangible because, you know, the old expression, the truth is stranger than fiction, um, has to bear true because fiction has to be extremely believable. Um, and so that's been, you know, kind of my goal is, you know, the setting is a character in my books. The setting absolutely is a character and it has to be. It comes through definitely. 
one of the other anchors to this book, and I think many of your other books, is food. You kind of celebrate the culture of France mm -hmm. through its cuisine. Was that a conscious choice or did that just come about because that's the way France is? Well, I mean, a bit of both, um, you know, because I, the interesting story, and I may write a book about this someday, is that I was the world's pickiest eater as a child. And nowadays I'd probably get diagnosed with AFRID, which is, you know, extreme food avoidance, um, except for a certain very specific um, group of foods. And um, it was when I went to France that I learned to eat. And so I associate it like emotionally with good food. And, um, but I mean, I think the trend or my, my, my um, turning my career toward foodie fiction has definitely been a conscious um, decision. Um, and I actually had to take a food, a food description out of, uh, cause I am writing, I uh, have a book coming out in September, Mademoiselle Eiffel, that has nothing to do with food really. Mm -hmm. And I had a food description and my editor said, this belonged in a bakery in Paris, take it out, put it up on your blog or something. But, the, you know, so, you know, this is not the lane for that, which was funny. But I, I do love, you know, I, I think it adds to the atmosphere um, and people enjoy food. I mean, it's a common element and it is, you know, we, we talk about cultural appropriation. I think the one area of our lives that we have to exclude from that entire discussion is food. Um, by and large, because that is our, uh, that is what we share with each other. That is, you know, that is how we as a common species can bond. And um, so I like bringing that forth in my book. I love cooking and I, um, you know, I love exploring the flavors of various places and it's just a delight to bring them to the page. And there are actual functional recipes in the back of the memory of lavender and sage, which was a great deal of fun. Yeah, they look wonderful. Um, was how how exactly do you go about developing them, the recipes in the book? Do you know particular things that you want in advance, or does the story dictate I need to have a pesto recipe or something like that? Well, the pesto being, you know, okay, so um, a, a large theme throughout the book is, I mean, you look at the title, Lavender and Sage, those are herbs. And so there's a large um, element of um, herb, you know, a, a large kind of symbol, symbolic thread with herbs throughout. And each of the herbs, especially, you know, they, because we know that flowers in the Victorian era all had their meaning, so do herbs. Yeah. And basil is the herb of love. So it comes up a lot and it's tricky to grow. I grew my own herb garden here in Estes Park, Colorado. Let me tell you, it's a trick because our, our growing season is about a week and a half. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, you know, it's a tricky herb to grow. And it's a, it's a great fun one, but pesto and, you know, it, it ends up solving a conflict. <laughs> this magic pesto of Tempestas. And, um, you know, it was a, something I really wanted to play with. So all the recipes that come forth in the book, because she has this amazing herb garden, um, they, uh, they, come, they come up a lot. And so all the recipes have something herbal about them. Mm. And so I played with them a lot. And I knew that pesto was where I wanted to start it because it's so herb heavy. I mean, it basically, for those of you who don't know, pesto is basically a ton of basil a bit of olive oil and garlic and pine nuts and you blend it all up and it's easy, it's accessible and it would be a good place for her to start. Um, and, you know, she's a food critic. Yeah. And so um, she, uh, and that's a kind of a fun part. I love the early chapters set in New York when she's a food critic. Mm -hmm. um, I loved writing those. And um, she, you know, and um, she, you know, she has a different relationship from food but she's trying to get away from the kind of corporatized relationship to food that she had when she was writing for a newspaper in New York. Yeah, and I thought that was, connecting with that. 
that was fascinating because she wants to write honest reviews of what she's experiencing in a restaurant and her friend the editor is like well we have to balance that with keeping the newspaper open and not annoying the subscribers and the advertisers yeah the sponsor you know they're they're you know they're major advertisers in the paper and it's just the reality you know newspaper is such a hard medium anymore hmm. that you know i mean i i'm a huge fan of ruth reichel and i've read her work yeah. and i uh, she's just amazing but she and I read her book and talked about how and then actually after I wrote Lavender and Sage, I read her book about her transition to becoming a food critic for The New York Times. And um, I don't think that it would be as easy to do that anymore yeah. um, to go in and be give really scathing reviews because um, advertising dollars, no, newspapers are in such a precarious position that they can't afford to alienate anybody. She has a new novel coming out. In April. Yeah, I've read it. I, I got a NetGalley copy, the, the Paris novel, and oh. it's brilliant. She's just amazing. Um, can Americans, this probably is something that is easy to answer, but can Americans really own property in France? I believe so. I believe so. I did do some research. And um, of course, Tempesta has um, the uh, has, um, you know, she's got ties. Her mother was a French citizen. So that would make it easier. I did not get into a lot of the specifics. I mean, I was thinking about how she was going to ship her stuff over. Like, yeah. is she going to, you know, cargo? And so I decided to simplify it because I don't want to put too much shoe leather to use an industry term um, mm -hmm. in the book, um, you know, going, unlocking the door, opening the door, you know, we want to minimize that. So I just had her pay for overage, you know, stripping down her belongings to the bare minimum and taking over a few extra suitcases and paying the overage um, because it was simplest. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of her leaving most of her old life behind yeah. and yeah. most of what she brings with her are mementos of her mother that she's finally given access to after her father passes away. And that's not a spoiler. It's an opening chapter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure. I'm pretty sure Americans can. It might be a lot of extra paperwork. I actually, for Karen Carbo, um, a friend of mine and also a member of the Tall Poppy Writers, is living in... Um, the southwest of France, as we in Calioure, which is a beautiful place, and I do believe she owns her property there, and they're renovating, and it's been quite the adventure. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process. You've alluded to it before for your novels, but I think you had written somewhere or had um, something to the effect that you think of authors as being like explorers, and some authors want a map, other authors just want to set off on a journey. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny is that I find that my process evolves a lot. And um, I think that uh, most people are actually a hybrid between a mapper. And we, we use the term plotter and pantser, but I prefer mapper and explorer. And there are some people that really want to know exactly what stops they're making along the path. And other people who are, you know, they just want to set off and see where the journey takes them. I think most of us are somewhere in the middle. And I know that for my historical fiction, I like having a roadmap that's going to tell me how I'm going to get from A to B, but I leave myself the, um, the freedom to take a side journey every once in a while if I want to. Um, but a lot of that is mapped out, um, especially the big historical events. It's scaffolded by actual history, which is, you know, it's nice to have that guide. Um, but with, with writing contemporary, I, I joke that um, part of my process for my first two contemporaries was spending six months beating my head against a wall. 
<laughs> and then figuring out where it's going because a lot of the time in my historical i'd map out the big things and then i'd let like the um the romantic relationships happen organically or the friendships happen organically but this is so much more about the the friendships and the romantic relationships and the self-discovery that I had, I realized that I couldn't just let all that happen by accident without driving myself crazy. Um, and so I, I've learned that I do need to do a bit more mapping. It just looks different in a contemporary book. And um, so I've learned that uh, my lesson even more for the second book. And I think that I'm, you know, if I get, if I'm lucky enough to write a third contemporary, um, then, you know, I will uh, definitely have some more tools in my arsenal. Um, but it's good to know more than just the bare bones events, but having an idea of how some of the relationships are going to evolve going in is definitely easier when they are really the focus of the story. That's great. Um, you've been writing for a while now. If you mm -hmm. had a time machine and could go back and tell yourself when you were first starting out, this is the best piece of advice I can give you about publishing and the writing business, what would that advice be? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think it's always advocate for yourself. Um, you can't trust it. I mean, even, you know, you have to put your own interest first. Um, when it, I mean, I don't mean that to sound selfish. That does sound very selfish, but you really have to advocate for yourself because publishers, agents all have a lot of interests, some of them which are conflicting with what is going to be best for your career. So you have to do your best to be the squeaky wheel in a way that isn't going to alienate your, your agent or your editors. Um, but you want to make sure that you've got an agent that's advocating for you and not just trying to maintain their relationships with their editors, because they really, you know, you are how they earn money, not the editors. Um, and they have to treat their authors like a precious resource. And so just knowing that you are the only one who can really change the direction of your career is powerful. It really is um, because you have the agency over what you do, what you write and how you write it. And um, of course, you know, the, the market's going to dictate a lot, but, um, you know, follow your instincts. And if a house doesn't like what you're doing and you are convinced in your heart of hearts that it is the best thing for you to write, then you know that then you have some tough dis decisions and tough discussions to have um but you have to listen to your gut you have to so if you if you really want to world write a world war ii historical novel despite what everyone's saying about it being the death knell for that time period you should do that is what you definitely i mean is it going to be an uphill battle sure yeah. do you need to have something fresh and original yes that's why, you know, I predicted that the, the World War II trend was slowing down around the time that I wrote Across the Winding River, which is a novel of which I'm very fond. But I'm like, you know, it's just not going to have the same pull, even though there have been a slew of World War II novels since. But then I came across the School for German Brides idea um, while I was researching for that book. And it was about the schools that where women were trained to be proper Nazi housewives. And it's horrific as it sounds. And I said, but that nobody's done it. Nobody, you know, it, it's different. It's horrifying. It's like Stepford Wives meets the Nightingale. Um, this has got a hook the size of an anchor. Yeah, you know, and and sure enough, it found a home very quickly. Um, and uh, but it was different enough. And I felt like, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily. I mean, I wanted to transition away from World War II, but I'm like, this is such a good idea um, that I wanted to write it, and I thought it was fascinating, and um, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did, and it did well, and I'm very happy for that. 
Let's talk a little bit about Amy as a reader, because you write, you've got your start writing historical fiction. Is that where you got your start as a reader? And should we really blame Ken Follett for your writing career? Oh, absolutely. Uh, blame Ken Follett. No, uh, that was the book, um, Pillars of the Earth, was the book that absolutely made me fall in love with historical fiction as a genre. Um, my uncle recommended, I got a Powell's gift card in Portland, Oregon for uh, some graduation Christmas, something or other, because I was living in Oregon at the time. And um, I said, well, you know, I, I loved reading these books that were, I mentioned there was like these books when I was in middle school that were um, Sweet Valley High, but they were set like in their, you know, is like the origin story of their great, you know, when their great grandma immigrated. And I thought they were just great. I said, is, are there grown-up versions of this, uh, you know, very smart uncle of mine? And he said, yeah, you need to read Ken Follett, Pillars of the Earth, and you will love it. And he was right. And that was one of those books that became, you know, kind of my, you know, one of the core pieces of literature that influenced me as a human being. Um, and if you're a writer, his master class, Ken Follett's master class on BBC or whatever, so much fun. So much fun and um, really insightful. Um, and then the other piece of literature that really influenced me, um, and it's pretty obvious, is The Handsmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. So if you read my work, it's kind of like, yeah, I can see that she she really, that, that is kind of part of her core personality are those two bits of literature because it takes those, you know, kind of dark feminist issues along with, you know, a, you know, a really rich historical setting. And that's kind of what I try to accomplish in my work. But yeah, I absolutely from the get-go have been drawn to historical as a reader and i think that that's the biggest you know that's another piece of advice if you want to read if you want to be a writer write the genre that you enjoy reading and you'll have a lot more fun um but yeah i read a tremendous amount of historical fiction partially for business reasons you know blurbing other authors being part of the community knowing what the market is doing but also because i really enjoy it and i listen to a lot of audiobooks because at the end of the day my eyes get very tired um, so, you know, and I try to write with the audiobook in mind as well. Um, but print book, there's uh, obviously I have an affinity for print books. And I think it's, um, you know, one of those things where, you know, they, you, they talk about the trend that people are reading less and less. And I think that those of us who do are still so, you know, steadfast mm -hmm. in, you know, wanting to have physical copies of their books. And I, I love that the trend is turning toward people who buy, who do buy physical books want you know, beautiful illustrate, you know, beautiful um, editions. collector's editions. And I'm one of those people for sure. You mentioned it briefly. Um, how much do you want to tell us about what's coming next from you as a writer? I have, well, I've got two more books coming out uh, down the pike that are for sure, for sure. Um, the next one comes out September 10th, 2024, which is called Mademoiselle Eiffel. And it is the story of Claire Eiffel, um, who, uh, similarity with Tempesta, she loses her mother at the age of 14. She's 14, her mom was only 32. And um, she ends up becoming her father's right-hand woman. Um, and this is based on a true story. She basically took over raising her four younger brothers and sisters. Um, she took over the running of the household and was basically his confidant and you know business associate to a certain degree. She traveled all over Europe with him um, to visit his various projects. And it's just a fascinating story. And I got to go spend time in Paris in the, art, the Eiffel family archives at the Musée d'Orsay, which was the experience of a lifetime. And that was delightful. Um, just loved writing that book. Um, and then I have one more contemporary coming out sometime in the spring of 25. 
And after that, we'll see what happens. But I'm very excited about both of those projects. How can readers learn more about your books? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? I think you mentioned uh, Tall Poppy Writers as part of a group. Yes, I am a member of the Tall Poppy Writers. So you can, you will, if you follow Tall Poppy Writers, you'll see stuff about my books pop up all the time. But I am all over social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, um, TikTok, occasionally threads um, as Amy K. Runyon for most of those or Bookish Amy on Instagram. And I do have a website, www.amykrunyon.com. And Amy is spelled A-I-M-I-E, which is a bit odd, but there you have it. My mom wanted to be creative. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I'm all over. And of course, you know, um, if you have a book club and you'd like me to come zoom in your book club, you can sign up through Novel Network or contact me directly. And I'm happy to um, come say hi to your book club if the timing works out. That's great. Um, the time has just flown by. We've been very fortunate at the Poison Pen to have Amy with us talking about her new book, The Memory of Lavender and Sage. It's truly um, an immersive, wonderful, evocative book. I can't thank Amy enough for taking time to share her thoughts about the book and writing. And for those tuning in, thank you for joining us for another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.